You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, Chapter Leadership Committee member of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. This episode is scheduled for December 16th, 2020. This is a bonus episode. It's the second one to be posted this week. Since it has a holiday season theme, I wanted to get it out this week. Before we get into today's subject, I wanted to mention an important Lighthouse-related anniversary on this date. On December 16th, 1870, exactly 150 years ago, the present lighthouse at Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, was lighted for the first time. At 198 feet, two and a half inches, it's considered the tallest masonry lighthouse in the United States and the second tallest brick lighthouse tower in the world. We did another special edition podcast interview about the anniversary last week. Also on this date in 1770, the composer Ludwig van Beethoven was born in Germany. He once said, quote, recommend virtue to your children. It alone, not money, can make them happy, unquote. I agree with that. That Beethoven was a smart fella. (laughs) Our guest is Dolly Snow Bicknell, and we'll be talking about the Flying Santa to the Lighthouses. Cindy, please help me explain what this is all about. Sure, Jeremy. The Flying Santa tradition traces its origins to a pioneering pilot named Bill Winkapaw. Winkapaw flew amphibious airplanes around the Penobscot Bay region in Maine. He often relied on the area's lighthouses to get him safely home. To show his appreciation to the lighthouse keepers and their families, on Christmas Day 1929, he loaded his plane with a dozen packages containing gifts for the lighthouse families. In the years that followed, Winkapaw expanded the flights to more of the Maine coast and to the other New England states. A few years later, the Winkapaw family relocated to Winthrop, Massachusetts. Bill Winkapaw Jr. had a history teacher at Winthrop High School by the name of Edward Rowe Snow, a budding historian. Edward Rowe Snow took an interest in the Flying Santa and took part in the 1936 flights. Unlike Bill Winkapaw, Edward Rowe Snow was never a pilot. Each year that he flew as the Flying Santa, he hired a plane and pilot. After some years, when the Flying Santa duties were shared by the Winkapaws and Edward Rowe Snow, Bill Winkapaw Sr. died in a plane crash in 1947. From the Christmas season that year through 1980, Mr. Snow kept the Flying Santa tradition alive. His wife, Anna Merle Snow, flew along each year, and their daughter Dolly took part beginning the year she was born in 1951. The Hull Lifesaving Museum took up the mantle of the Flying Santa flights from 1981 to 1997, when a separate nonprofit organization, the Friends of Flying Santa, was created. The yearly visits now encompass more than 30 stops and more than 60 Coast Guard units in the Northeast. Today, the flights are primarily a show of gratitude to Coast Guard personnel and their supportive families, although there are sometimes civilian stops mixed in. Dolly Snow Bicknell has been involved in lighthouse preservation as president of Project Gurnet and Bug Lights in Massachusetts. Dolly has been honored recently with a Keeper of the Light Award from the American Lighthouse Foundation and also a special award from the Hull Lifesaving Museum in recognition of her years on the board of directors of that organization and her work on behalf of many local charities. I interviewed Dolly about her lighthouse preservation activities back in Episode 3 of Lighthearted. 
This November, I spoke with her about her personal experience as the daughter of the popular author and longtime flying Santa, Edward Rowe Snow, and about her participation in the Santa flights. Let's listen to my conversation with Dolly Bicknell now. I'm speaking with my friend Dolly Snow Bicknell, and uh, Dolly's at her home in Marshfield, Massachusetts, down on the South Shore of Boston, and I'm at my home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, but we're speaking through the magic of Zoom. Dolly and I have known each other for a few years. What, about 30 years? Uh, maybe a little more than that, even. Closer to 100. <laughs> Just feels that way. <laughs> but it's really nice to see you today, Dolly. How, how are you doing? Nice to see you, too. I'm doing quite well. Nice to see somebody without a mask on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sitting here by myself, so. Right, so am I. (laughs) Yeah. Before we get into the Flying Santa, and we're going to, that's mostly what we're going to talk about today, let's talk about who your father was. I think uh, just about anyone in New England of a certain age, and I'm I'm of a certain age, so especially uh, people from around Boston or the coast of Massachusetts. Uh, they pretty much would remember your your dad. Uh, I grew up in Lynn, Massachusetts, just north of Boston, and I loved seeing him tell maritime stories on TV and, and uh, hearing him on radio. I remember I would see him on like uh, the Contact Show on uh, I think that was on WBZ, both radio and TV with Bob Kennedy. He used to be the other, Bob, the other Bob Kennedy is what yeah. he was. and uh, I'd hear him tell these stories of pirates and treasure and everything and. I'd listen to them and then go run and tell my mother, you know, repeat to my mother uh, the stories he had just told. But he was definitely a larger than life personality. His books were very popular and he wrote a zillion of them. So what was it like growing up as the daughter of a living legend? Well, to me, he was just my dad. I never read any of his books (laughs) when I was young. But in the fifth grade, our reading book had a true story by him about him solving a code from a book and finding buried treasure. It was the, it's in the True Tales of Buried Treasure. Yep. It's called The King of Calf Island. And I realized at that time that perhaps he was a bit special. And then also he received a letter. I remember going to the mailbox and coming back with a letter that only had his picture on it. It had no address. <laughs> and it got to him. <laughs> yes, and it got to him. And I thought, well, that's impressive too. But as you suggested, my childhood was kind of out of the ordinary, you know, dropping presents out of a plane, investigating shipwrecks or climbing lighthouses or exploring dungeons or canoeing out to meet the Mayflower 2 when she sailed into Plymouth Harbor in 1957. And I was an Indian in a canoe. We sailed shortly after that from Provincetown to Squantum, which is part of Quincy, on the shallop. Uh, where I was dressed as a pilgrim child and my dad was portraying Miles Standish. We had a pirate skeleton in the garage and treasure chests and Blackbeard's skull and pirate daggers and tea from the Boston Tea Party. But I thought everybody had that, (laughs) didn't you? (laughs) Not really, no. I think everything you just said is... So lucky to have such an interesting father. It was so much fun. Your father obviously loved lighthouses, along with uh, many other maritime things. But I think his favorite lighthouses were Boston Light and Minot's Light. He wrote a book about Minot's Light. He certainly wrote about Boston Light a lot. Do you remember any especially memorable visits to either those lighthouses or any other lighthouses with your dad? 
Yes, but the, the, these are not Flying Santa related. No, this, but we're going to get into Flying Santa in just a moment. This is just fun stuff. Um, one time going to Minot's Light with a group of Harbor Ramblers. He had a group of people that he used to take to different exciting locations almost every weekend. And as I was climbing up the ladder, the 50-foot ladder, 55-foot, 60-foot ladder, I heard him scream and dive off, surprising me, my mother, everyone else. I think it was that same one, that same trip, that he encouraged me to climb to the very tip-top of Minot's Light, the part that has the spire. Huh. Yeah. I don't uh, think I've heard this before. Well, no, I remember I was thinking about this and I, I realized later that this was not a very good idea and terrifying. I wasn't afraid of anything when I was with him, but I definitely never did that again. <laughs> um, and then one time when we had gone out to mine its light and he was going to dive off for three different cameras because the film at the end of his lectures was wearing out. And he had three different movie cameras on him. He dove off. My mother had given him permission. And he swam back to the boat, hooked his arm in the ladder and said, everything okay? And the first photographer said, I was too busy watching you. I forgot to take the picture. <laughs> the second one said, me too. And the third one said, I didn't take it either. <laughs> so he looked at my mother she gave him permission one more time to dive off and they were able to remember to take the movie to start the cameras. And then from then on, that was at the end of his, his, um, his moving pictures for his lectures. For Boston Light, I remember going there with the Harbor Ramblers and he would, he loved to dig clams. He always was digging clams every week in Marshfield and we'd have clam bakes and lobster bakes and I remember there was always a dog there named Salty and the dog loved lobsters and he would just eat them, shells and everything. And then Gurnet Light or Plymouth Light, yeah. I remember going there. That was one of my favorite place to go, places to go to because it was such a bumpy road and he would get a military like dune buggy. This is before that now there's a road that goes out there, but you'd go on the beach and we'd go out there and then... I got to play pool with the uh, Coast Guardsmen, and that was pretty fun. And then Cape, Cape Natick Nubble, he would go up to the Whispering Sands gift shop. I had just forgotten up all about that. And he'd autograph books, and we'd go to the, the lighthouse. But I remember going there, and, and it, it was just so much fun going back to the lighthouses that we'd flown over and have the people have such a good relationship with my dad. Also, we canoed to, when he was doing his book on Casco Bay, yeah. we canoed to many islands in Casco Bay. I remember canoeing to one that, what, Mark Island, I believe yeah. it is. And yeah, Mark Island, there's a, like a stone, they call it monument. It's got a light yeah. on it, but it's not really a lighthouse. And we climbed up, I remember climbing up that, and that was the first time that I went, this is dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> I think I started uh, questioning what my dad did. So those are some of the fun things I remember. Yeah. I know when you mentioned uh, him diving out of Minots, uh, I think one of those occasions was his 60th birthday, 60th birthday in 1962. That's Perhaps. what I Yeah. Perhaps. And uh, you uh, let me uh, copy film of that. So I actually show film of him diving uh, in a lot of my lectures. And that's, you can see that on YouTube as well. 
So if people search Edward Rowe Snow Minots, M-I-N-O-T apostrophe S on YouTube, they can see that, that clip. So uh, let's talk about the Flying Santa. So you first went on a Flying Santa flight when you were one year old, or less than one year old, right? And right. Uh, I don't think you remember too much about that one, but what are some of your earliest memories of the Flying Santa flights? Well, words like rough, bumpy. I loved that open window. As soon when they don't, he'd open the window to drop the packages out. It was just so nice. That's a mare. <laughs> yes. Um, it was usually a five-seat plane. I remember Piper, Apache, Aztec, Comanche. I don't know if those are real names, but I remember those. Yeah. Um, the pilot would always be in the front left, and my dad would be in the window right behind him with that special window that opened at the top. And then the front right would usually be a photographer, and behind him, next to my dad, would be my mother. And then I'd be in the back, in the middle, with packages all around me, packed left, right, up, down. And did I say rough and bumpy? I think I did. Each year it would be, should we try Dramamine? Should we try no Dramamine? Should we try breakfast? No breakfast? Made no difference. It was rough and it was difficult. But I kind of knew it was kind of special because everybody was pretty happy when um, when they saw him. So um, those are my earliest memories, I'm afraid. Some not all that pleasant, but at least some nice ones, too. Nice. So what was typically in the the packages? Cigars and cigarettes, because at that time, everybody smoked, although my parents never did. But the Coast Guardsmen were into cigars and cigarettes, candy, lollipops, chewing gum, pens and pencils, sunglasses, balloons, rubber balls, paperback books, Gillette razor blades, puzzles, Mm -hmm. sometimes a doll or other toy, and always a copy of his latest book. And then he also had a self-addressed stamp postcard that read, we have received your package and would have a space for the the lighthouse or Coast Guard station. And those postcards let him know that he could claim 94% accuracy over all those years that he flew. Uh, I remember he told me one time that they tried, I think it was just once, tried ribbon candy. <laughs> oh, somebody donated rib- ribbon candy. What were uh-huh. they <laughs> I think he ended up bringing a lot of that after it, he tried it, it broke. He brought it to when they would land because sometimes there would be people who would be there and he could give that out there. But ribbon candy, you're right. I had forgotten all about that. Good for That's you. That's pretty funny. The thought of dropping ribbon candy from a, a plane. A plane was <laughs> right. Did your father have sponsors or donors for the flights or how did that work? Well, he, um, a few sponsors like Gillette. I think Gillette always gave razor blades. Yeah. Um, and some people made monetary contributions, but he ended up paying for about 90% of the flights and including the flight insurance. And that kept getting higher and higher. And I remember him being so worried the last few years because, first of all, the the FAA wasn't going to let him go low. And that was terrifying him because what do you do? You can't drop packages and have them come anywhere near there. But also the insurance kept getting higher and higher. But he enjoyed it and he paid for 90% of the expenses. There must have been a lot of preparation involved in getting ready for the flights. And I've seen 
pictures of of you and your parents in the in the basement with all the packages piled up and everything. Yeah. Uh, what was involved in the preparation each year? Well, our ping pong table, which never really saw the light of day anyway, was totally packed with everything. I remember um, I learned to t- tie a bowling knot because that was one of the first things we did. A nine foot piece of, um, of twine with a bowling in it. And he would use that at the very end to wrap around the package. And that way you could carry it, but also it kept the package together. Um, so there was a place to cut the twine, to tie the bowling. There were the piles of cigars and cigarettes and all the things that went into it. And they were individually wrapped with newspaper and then Excelsior, which is kind of a a type of hay. And that was for padding and buoyancy. Um, The buoyancy part was in case it didn't make the island or it ran into it or landed in perhaps a, a pond. And then brown wrapping paper that would be wrapped around everything and then the twine. And at the end, if there was something like a doll or there were there was a family, or maybe a dog, he would write S for stag, which meant no women, D for dog, I mean, T for doll, F for family, and then dog on it. Uh-huh. He'd put Gainsburgers in at one point. They were things that, um, and then, you know, dog, dog biscuits, those were also included sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing uh, one of those cards that was sent back to him, thanking him for the, that the station's dogs, I think there were two dogs, Thanked them for the Gainsburgers. I bet they aren't made. I hope they're not made. I, I don't I, think so. It didn't sound right so. either. They've gone the way of ribbon candy. Yeah, I don't think I've heard that name in a while. Let's talk a little bit about the logistics of how the Flying Santa flights were done. Can you describe what it was typically like flying over? When you would fly over the lighthouse and your father well, was dropping the, the presents? Well, first of all, he was not a pilot. And that's important. People mm-hmm. sometimes think that. But he was not a pilot. But he seemed to have a really good rapport with the pilots. And then, as we said, he had a special window that opened up. And then the plane always read Flying Santa on it. There was something that they had put on so they could tell. And what would happen is we'd take off. And when we got near the lighthouse, we would start to descend. And we'd circle once or twice to let the people know that we were there. Because he didn't want to hit anybody. Um, people were pretty excited about the fact that um, this was going to happen and they wanted to make sure they saw where the packages went, but he didn't want anybody, didn't want anybody there. And then as we were down close enough, once the pilot was where he wanted them to be, he would open up the window and balance it on his head. And um, I would hand him or somebody would hand him the correct package because sometimes he actually wrote the the lighthouse on it because he might have known somebody that um, he wanted to drop something special for. And then he would drop it out. And all I can say, it sounded like when he did it, because it would just get sucked out. And then he would lean out of the plane to see where it went and then rinse and repeat. No, then he'd do it again because there were usually once or, or sometimes he'd do two packages at once, but it depended on how big the, um, the island was. Right. And then we do it one more time. And then we would go around again, just to make sure that they got it. And usually they would, the people would run, pick up the packages and wave. Mm-hmm. And that was just really special. That was great. <sighs> yeah. That was really, really uh-huh. 
So I was wondering, I know that uh, you said he had 94% accuracy overall, but I think the accuracy, accuracy was much lower at some of the uh, rock lighthouses or wave swept lighthouses, places like oh, Minots and Graves Light. Or Graves Light. No, Minots Light was where he, I knew he would, he would take three packages, tie them together and try and loop it over part of the lighthouse. Right. Um, Did you see that in action? Do you um, remember seeing that? I don't think so. I was thinking about that. I, I have pictures of the light of the keeper holding up the package afterwards. Yeah, at minus. I did not yeah. see that, but I remember him maybe reading about him saying that, or maybe him saying that. In fact, I was thinking. I think when I went, I usually did the main route up mm-hmm. in Maine because we'd land at Rockland, and that was where our relatives were. My dad was from Rockland, Maine, mm-hmm. and so that was the route I took. and And it would take uh, maybe sometimes five days of flying to do this. So, and I could only get out of school like for one time. I'm not sure, cause he didn't, I'm not sure if he did it on the weekends, the way that's the way it happens now, but um, I don't know. But so I don't think I ever saw mine. It's like get uh, dropped on. Right. There was some interesting ones in Maine though, that you might remember like Boone Island and halfway rock. I mean, those had to be interesting places because there's not much land around the lighthouse right and i remember um going out to halfway halfway rock afterwards once you know on a summer summer's day and Mm. thinking wow this would be (laughs) good job yeah it depends whether it's high tide or low tide it is quite a bit of rock around there at low tide but not much at high tide exactly and i'm sure he couldn't plan that right you mentioned uh, the people waving and everything. I'm just wondering if there's anything else that stands out in your mind as far as reactions from, from people. Lots of jumping up and down. Uh, yeah. Funny, though, I remember him saying once that he got a letter saying, thank you for flying over. Why didn't you drop anything? And he insisted that he had. Right. And the keeper found it later wedged in the rocks. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah. Well, that still counts as a as a yes. positive uh, drop. Yes. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I know things like that happened occasionally. I've seen some of the the cards telling about that. The they find the package uh, in February or something uh, stuck in a, a crevice. So that wasn't there a case where the dog brought it to the, yes. the keeper? I think yes. I forget where that was, but I remember hearing it. And things that had been out in the in the elements for a long time, the razor blades were always good. Yeah, um, it's a good ad for Gillette. Any other memorable things that, that stand out for you? Uh, just strange things or interesting things that happened during the flight? Well, he would always lean out of the, the plane. And one time he lost his whiskers. Another time he lost his hat, his Santa hat. And he needed his Santa hat. I, I think we were supposed to be on television in, um, in Maine. We were going to land and he had to, had to go with a Santa hat. And he didn't have it because he had leaned forward. Mm-hmm. So from then on, he never wore the Santa hat in the plane or the whiskers. I think you reminded me recently that someone once mailed the whiskers back to him. Right. I think he said, here's your beard. Now, where's my package? <laughs> That's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know one time the package that had been thrown out got stuck in the steering mechanism at the back. I don't know if that's called a rudder. I, I mean, that's what I'd call it in a boat. But Well, the tail mechanism. Yeah. yeah. It was near that, Boone Island, I think, when that happened. That was terrifying because. But that, were you were you there? I don't know. I just remember him being very upset. Yeah, 
Well, I've read about that and they uh, couldn't steer, but somehow, I mean, couldn't steer well, but somehow the pilot managed to fly it to the Pease uh, Air Force Base in Portsmouth, which isn't that far from Boone Island, but that had to be the closest call on flying Santa history. No, I couldn't have been there then. I would have remembered that, unless it was one of the times when I was really little. At Curtis Island Light, when the people had, the keepers had written um, a message on the, on the island, and my dad was so impressed with this, he insisted that the pilot fly around and take, we, my dad took more pictures and the pilot was very interested and, and everybody was looking down. And I remember this, uh, all of a sudden the pilot looked up and went, oh, Mount Batty and pulled <laughs> the plane up because he had, uh, he was having a little bit too much fun looking at what was going on down below and they almost hit Mount Batty. One of the highest mountains on the East Coast that for people who don't know. One of the great Flying Santa stories involves Simon Ponsart, who was the daughter of the keeper at Cuddyhunk Lighthouse in Massachusetts in the 40s. And uh, I, I know Simon well, and uh, she lives down in Louisiana now. But your father dropped a doll for her from the plane, and the doll broke uh, when it hit a rock. So he actually hired a helicopter the following year just so he could hand her a doll. That was the first time a helicopter was used in the Flying Santa flights. That all happened before your time, but I believe you've corresponded with Simond and you finally got to meet her some years ago. That must've been pretty special. Yes, uh, she was an elf on the Friends of Flying Santa helicopter. Mm -hmm. Went to Gurnet Light or Plymouth Light, which is light that I'm in charge of. I'm the president of the group. Project Granite and Bug Lights. Mm -hmm. And I got to meet her and she was so sweet. She had corresponded with me, as you said, quite a bit. She um, had talked about how special that day was when the doll was dropped and broke and how her dad was able to fix it because he could fix anything. And it was her play sick doll with band-aids. And I think he put a sling on it for one yeah. thing. So she was, um, you know, I, I, I feel like I, I, grew up with her. I knew her quite well, but it was so wonderful to meet her. And I had brought my dad's Santa hat and she touched it and she said she felt it tingle. And I think that might've happened. It was very special. We were at the top of Gurnet Light and we, it was just a very, very, very special time. Yeah. It's great that, that uh, everybody was able to, to do that. And to meet uh, under those conditions. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, that same day, I took the ferry out to Martha's Vineyard so I could rendezvous with the Flying Santa at West Chop Light on Martha's Vineyard, where Simon spent 10 years of her young life. Yes. Uh, so it was great seeing her look through the houses there and remember what, you know, how the, what the house looked like when she was a girl and what it looks like now and that kind of thing. That was great. And she was having such a good time that day as the, the elf for Flying yes. Santa. Yes. Let's uh, skip ahead to when the uh, the Hull Life Saving Museum took over the flights in 1981. Your father was in the hospital at that time, and they kept the tradition going until 1997. So I know you're on the board of directors of the Hull Life Saving Museum. I love that place. I've spoken there a few times. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the museum? I know it's a little bit off the Flying Santa subject, but maybe you could say a little bit about what the Hull Life Saving Museum is and, and what it does. It's, it's kind of tricky, but um, I have their mission here. And uh, the driving principles of the 19th century coastal lifesavers, skills, courage, and caring 
are the foundations of the Hull Life Saving Museum's commitment to impact individual lives for the better. They foster a community dedicated to the preservation of Boston Harbor's rich maritime heritage and life-saving traditions through exhibits, collections, open water rowing programs, and stewardship of historic sites. So it's kind of tricky. There's a building, which is actually the Point Allerton U.S. Life-Saving Station, which was built in 1889. But then it's also a museum in the building where there are exhibits of like a 1904 fourth order Fresnel lens from Gurnet Light or Gurnet Light. Um, There's the 29 foot boat from the the Mass Humane Society life-saving boat, the Nantasket. Um, There's an exhibit about Joshua James, who is an unbelievable lifesaver. And outside there's a breeches buoy that the kids can ride on. Uh, There's an exhibit right now, uh, Miniature Ships, Epic Stories, and that's going to be there through February of 2021. There have been past exhibits on sea dogs and one fabulous one on the Flying Santa. Yep, I remember that. Um, They have a gift shop, but they also have a maritime rowing program for youths and adults. There are three sites. There's the Point Allerton Station, the Windmill Point Boathouse, which was a former Coast Guard station. And then in Boston, at Fort Point Channel, at the Barking Crab, there's their rowing center. So they have a lot going on. Um, They are open still and adapting, but it's difficult with COVID going on. We're talking in late November, just so people know, and this will be heard on the podcast two two or three weeks later. But again, the Hull Life Saving Museum is, is a great place. Anybody interested in maritime history, if they're in the Boston area, should definitely go there. And uh, you mentioned Joshua James, one of the probably the most famous lifesaver in the history of the life-saving service. He was in charge at that that station for some years. Yeah, I, I looked up information about him, and um, no one ever died in a rescue in which he participated. Mm, that's he was incredible. Barely five feet tall. Oh, I didn't know that. Lived to be seventy-five, and sixty of those years he saved over a thousand lives. Just unbelievable. What a life, yeah. Yes. They say when he was, uh, he died actually on the beach, I believe. And they yes. say his last words were, the tide is ebbing. Right. I'm not sure if that's a story or not, but that's what's it's said. It's a good yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. Quite a guy. Back to the Flying Santa. Years ago, for, for all the years your, your father was doing it, and before him, Bill Winkapaw, the primary purpose, although they did go to life-saving stations, in some other places other than lighthouses, but it was mostly a way to thank lighthouse keepers and their families. And of course, the lights were automated over the years, and there aren't really traditional keepers anymore living at the lighthouses, although our friend Sally Snowman at Boston Light is the only official lighthouse keeper in the country these days. But the Friends of Flying Santa, the nonprofit, uh, continues the tradition today, and uh, mostly is a way to say thank you to Coast Guard families and the helicopters land at the Coast Guard stations and Santa gives out presents to the, the kids there. What do you think? Is it important that the, uh, the Flying Santa flights continue today? I think it's important. The Coast Guard is taking the place of the lighthouse keepers and they do a great job and their families, you know, they, they sacrifice time. The families, I think it's a great transition that has been made. 
in 2007, I received a call from Brian Tague, the president, oh, right. and he said that he needed an elf. <laughs> and yeah. first, I was so excited. And then I dreaded it because I remembered how bumpy it was. And then I went on this because Santa needs to have an elf to make sure his, his, co his costume, his suit is perfect. He can't read the names of the kids because his glasses always fog up. <clears throat> he just needs a, a little assistant. And it was just wonderful interacting with the kids where I had never had a chance to do that before. And to watch how they loved him and how the Santa would say, okay, Jeremy, I know you've been a pretty good boy, but <laughs> you should work a little harder in school and make sure you listen to your parents. Yeah. Um, it's just wonderful to see that. Of course, these were fabulous Santas. But I've been an elf for three times. My daughter's been one, both my grandsons. And some of the pilots are amazing. They just say it's the best day of their year. You know, they love it. But I've also been on the ground when the Flying Santa came. And it still has the same magic to people of all ages. It's just a wonderful. I mean, I always cry when, when I hear the helicopter. Um, used to be a plane, but now it's the helicopter, and it's just very emotional. It's magic, it is. It is magic to see the adults and the kids and Santa and everything. Yeah. So thank uh, you, because you are part of this too, Jeremy. For a little bit. Keeping, keeping the tradition going. Yeah. Our friend Brian Tagg does so much work to keep it going every year. More work than anybody can imagine. Yes, he does. But uh, I've been on the ground a number of places with Santa landing, and I know how special it is. And as you were talking, one thing that occurred to me, it seems like every time I see it in person, as soon as Santa lands in the helicopter and gets out of the helicopter and starts walking towards wherever they're going to be giving out the presents, there's always one little kid, <laughs> usually a little girl, who runs up to Santa and hugs him, just can't right. wait and has to hug him right away. Right. It's, it's amazing. so cute. It really yeah. is so cute. Of course, this year's a little different with the pandemic. They're having to do it in a socially distant kind of way, but they're still, the flights are still happening this year. In fact, uh, I think this, uh, people will be hearing this on December 16th. I think the flights will be about, about over by then. Mm -hmm. or, I hope so for, for his sake. Yeah. They're yeah. Gonna, uh, people them drive up in cars, I believe. Yes. Yeah. But the kids will still get to see the helicopter come in and see, yes. see Santa. So it's still exciting, even though it's a little different this year. And only, only Coast Guard, no civilian stops. Right. We should mention that uh, most years in recent years under Friends of Flying Santa, there have been some civilian stops. Burnt Island not. Lighthouse in Maine is one. Uh, Situate, but near the Situate Lighthouse is another right. one. And the whole Life Saving Museum is another one at times has been visited. Yeah, That's right. And uh, at those stops, it's just candy canes that are given out. Yeah. It's a little bit of a preview of Christmas for the, for the kids for everybody. Why do you think your father devoted so much time, energy, and money to the Flying Santa flights for all those years? Well, he was descended from a long line of sea captains on both sides of his family, yeah. both his mother and his father. And I think that he really appreciated lighthouses and their keepers even more because of that. In his, uh, in his book, The Famous Lighthouses of New England, yeah. He, the quote, can I read the quote? Absolutely. I think this is the, this is what he wrote in 1945. He said, lighthouses from the earliest times have fascinated and intrigued members of the human race. To almost every man and woman, 
there is something about a lighted beacon which suggests hope and trust and appeals to the better instincts of all mankind. Standing off by itself in the ocean, a lighthouse symbolizes the eternal vigilance of its keeper, who must be alert and watchful at all times, in sunshine or darkness, in fog or stormy weather. And I think that he really thanked them for doing that. He, the stories that he learned about the lighthouse keepers risking their lives or the wives of the lighthouse keepers taking over when the husbands were away, they really were very special to him. But um, I think this is a way to give back, that he really, this, there must have been a reason, <laughs> but yeah. I think this, this may have been it. Yeah, I was uh, thinking as you were reading the quote, I was thinking how, of course, lighthouses are like a symbol, an icon, you know, representing all kinds of positive qualities. And so is Santa. <laughs> so you bring together Santa and lighthouses, you got uh, a lot of a lot of good uh, karma going on there, I would say. You're right. You're Two right. of the most positive symbols in our culture, I would say. So I have one final question for you for bonus points. Okay. So get your number two pencil do I, ready. Do I win something? Okay. <laughs> Well, you win the satisfaction of the interview being over. Okay, got it. So what did you like best about uh, taking part in the Flying Santa flights? I liked the the best part for me was when they were over. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but really? Yeah. um, We got to land in Rockland, Maine and see relatives. Dropping packages for my school. That was kind of fun. Yeah. One time they let me steer the plane because they thought that might help me. Um, not be be sick, and it was fun. Seeing the beautiful Christmas lights on the way home when it was dark, on the way, you know, when we're when we're flying and not circling anything, it was exciting. It was rough, it was bumpy, but it was exciting. And seeing the happy, smiling people, and the fact that somehow we were making people happy. No doubt about that. Made a lot of people very, very happy. Dolly. Snow Bicknell, thank you so much for this time today. And it's really nice seeing you again. We haven't seen each other in person in a while, but it's been nice seeing you. This is like the third time I've seen you via Zoom in the last few weeks or so. That's so right. That's, that's right. It. And it's a pleasure to see you. Well, again, thank you so much. And Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. We're speaking just a couple of days before Thanksgiving. So I hope you have a very happy Thanksgiving. Same to you. And thank you so much for having me on. Check out FlyingSanta.org to read more about the past and present of the 91-year-old Flying Santa tradition. This year's visits to Coast Guard stations were different because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but they still happened on schedule. Santa landed at the stations by helicopter and gifts were distributed to Coast Guard children while following all the recommended guidelines. It was a pleasure as always speaking with Dolly Bicknell about the Flying Santa tradition. Her father was a huge inspiration for me and Dolly has been a great friend to me and to the Lighthouse Preservation Community. I also want to thank my friend Brian Taig, president of the Friends of Flying Santa. To hear an interview with Brian from last year, check out episode 35 of Lighthearted. Thanks, as always, to all the staff, volunteers, and members of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Donations to the U.S. Lighthouse Society make this podcast possible, along with other lighthouse-related education and preservation projects check out the website at uslhs.org to find out about all the tours, the quarterly journal, the Lighthouse Passport Program, and all the things the Society has to offer. 
If you listen to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. Thank you for co-hosting today, Cindy. You're welcome. A big thank you to everyone who's involved in Lighthouse Preservation. We're all on the same team. As always, thanks so much for listening and... Keep a good light. Thank you.